We're in this passage today, Acts 1 through 7. But as a way of introduction, uh, there's a great experiment done in the 1990s, 1980s, I'm sorry, um, in the Arizona desert called the Biodome. Has everybody heard of the Biodome? If you are a 90s Pauly Shore fan, um, I saw a lot of people getting ready for that. Uh, it's actual real place that I think the movie's loosely based off of. But the biodome was an exercise of a study to learn like in a perfect living environment for human beings, plants, and animal lives, what would happen. Um, it's a huge glass dome. If you ever Google it, it's just amazing. Um, it's like an artificial, artificially controlled environment um, that is full of like purified air and water and purified filtered light and so on. And the premise of it, is to create this perfect environment like that humans and, and nature can interact with and what we learn from it with trees and fruits and vegetables. Um, people would live in this biodome for many months at a time and it was almost like a space station on Earth. And it's wonderful and everything seemed to be going really well in this 1980s biodome experiment um, with one exception. Um, there was something happening with the trees in this biodome. Um, when the trees were planted and they grew to a certain height, the trees would simply just topple over. They would just fall over. And this thing that kept happening kept like baffling the scientists. They didn't know what was happening until they realized that one thing they didn't include in their, in their biodome that was so important to the growth of the trees was they forgot the element of wind. In this perfect scenario, there was no wind. There was no, there was no weather in that sense. And what they learned was trees needed wind to actually blow against them, which in turn would like cause pressure and stress, and it would make the tree's roots grow stronger and they would grow deeper, causing them as they grew to sustain the weight as they grew taller. And for like a million reasons why it's a great story, it became this really great parable for life. As you thought about like this, this stress, like what you would think is good for the trees not to have, not to have wind. It actually found out, it's like, oh, it's a needed stressor on the tree so that it can grow. And often, I think in our lives, in the life of the church, we desire a perfect environment with no interruptions, no stress, no conflict. And we try to avoid those conflict and tensions at all costs, if you're like me. And in some cases, in this case of the tree, it was actually the conflict and the tension that the wind provided that was nature's wisdom at work in that. And today, and through this summer, we've been going through the beginning of the book of Acts in the season of the church called Ordinary Time. That's the time we're in. The time between um, Pentecost, um, which we celebrate at the beginning of Acts, all the way to Advent at the end of November. And we are walking through the book of Acts, chapter 1 through 10, learning about what life in the Spirit is like as disciples, saying, how, what did the early church do? How did the early church interact with one another? In many different forms. We looked at a few weeks ago, and it came, a form of destruction came from like intimidation from the religious elite and opposition to the way of Jesus. The enemy tried to corrupt the church from within with deceit and hypocrisy with Ananias and Sapphira. And all of these strategies, they seem unsuccessful at stopping what the work of the Spirit was doing in the church. And today we encounter another challenge. It seems now the challenge is this divide and conquer that the enemy wants to do in this group of, of disciples of Jesus. Divide and conquer, conflict enters in the church. And we can say that with Acts chapter five and six that we've looked at, that like the good old days of the early church movement were, were kind of shifting into more of reality, into more of some real like struggles and how do we deal with this? And they now have to deal 
um, with potential divisions that arise in the church. And what I wanna look at this morning um, for us is how, how do they handle the conflict? How do they handle the wind that comes in, right? Like what, what do they react to, what do they do? I can probably just surely say all of us have been through some form of conflict in our lives. We know just like a lot of conversations with you, a lot of that has come even in church relationships. Relationships within the body of Christ, when conflict rises up, what is our posture? How do we do this? And so Acts 6, 1 through 7, we're just gonna walk through and talk about what scripture has to say about conflict. So if you have your Bible, go to Acts 6, 1 through 7. Um, verses will be up on the screen as well. But let's read this first one. In those days when the numbers of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. And so this is the scene. This is where the conflict arises. And just let's get a little cultural background so we understand like, because we can read this and be like, I don't understand what the big deal is about this. So the little cultural background. First, we're told what? We'll go back to that verse for a second, uh, Brett. Keep that up there. First, we're told that in those days, the number of disciples was increasing. More and more people are being added to this crew. And it's an influx. And if you've ever been part of any organization or any business or, or a family that has suddenly had this like growth trajectory, like you understand the dizzying effects of that. Um, we, we know that the, the apostles, that the disciples, they would care for one another in a deep communal way and just the influx of people and that you can imagine that it's kind of like flying a plane, like or building a plane as you're flying it, that analogy. They're putting it together, figuring it out. And so they're increasing in number, which puts a stress on it. And next we're introduced to two groups of disciples. It says, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews. And we have these two groups, and we can go like, I don't understand, like, what are the two differences of these groups? And where we're at in the story, and just so we know that later in the story, we will see Gentiles, non-Jews, coming into faith in, in Christ, becoming part of the family of God. We're not at that part of the story yet. So these are Jewish people, but they have different ethnic identities. Different ethnic identities. Ethnicity is about people's common culture history or heritage. And ethnicity is, is a shared heritage between a group of people. And we have two different ethnic groups in this passage. First, the Hebraic Jews. Hebraic Jews were um, native-born Palestinian Jews. So they spoke Aramaic as their native tongue. They lived in Jerusalem in this local area or really close to the surrounding areas. They are the locals. They look, they act, they speak, like Hebraic Jews. And then you have the Hellenistic Jews who would have been born outside of Judea. Their first la language would not have been Aramaic. Their first language would have been Greek. They would have been faithful Jews in their, in their observing Torah and their practice, but they would look and act completely different. They would be from a Greek culture around them. And this group, the Hellenistic Jews, the Greek-speaking Jews, they would have been the minority here the minority in this new group of Jesus followers. Um, it's possible, if we remember in Pentecost, a lot of influx happens in Jerusalem. A lot of people come in. A lot of Hellenistic Jews, Greek-speaking Jews, come to observe the different holidays and festivals. Um, we have two different ethnic groups who have different histories, different ways of doing things. 
um, different languages and they are so close together. They are doing like the new family of God together. And if you could just like imagine any scenario, like of course there's going to be tension there. Of course there's going to be misunderstandings there. Of course there's going to be what the scriptures say, overlooking there. And the problem comes um, with the treatment of widows. And the early church had this way of practicing the new family of God. Normally widows would have been taken care of by their own relatives. It was part of the Torah that that was your responsibility to take care of widows and orphans and widows that were part of your household. However, those family ties, they seem to be cut or they seem not to be in place here. As in some parts of the world today, like baptism into Jesus actually means saying goodbye to one family and like entering a new family. And so this new family is taking on the obligations of caring for the widows in the daily distribution of food. This is a high honor society. This is really important to them that they honor and they take care of widows. And in this passage, it says what? It says that the widows, go back to that passage, Brett. It says that the widows, sorry, the Hellenistic Jews, among them complained against the Hebrew, Hebraic Jews because their widows were being what? They're being overlooked. They're being overlooked. The term overlooked here suggests that the widows were going unnoticed. Like they were going unnoticed. They were invisible to the group that was distributing food. In other words, the Hebrew-speaking disciples, when they distributed the food, they didn't notice that they were preferring the Hebrew-speaking Jews and they were ignoring or overlooking or not even noticing the minority group of the Hellenistic Jews. There's this underlying just prejudice that's there among the disciples that bubbles up to the surface. They don't notice it, they overlooked it, but the Hellenistic crew, they notice it and they bring it to attention. It says a complaint arose. And so this is towards the other. And all this is possible, possible for things to go really badly for the early church. How do they react to this? If we've seen anything, just like the past couple years, like when conflict comes, it gets really tricky on how to, how to walk through it and how to deal with it, how to humbly like know what's the right thing to do. And I, and I love this story in this passage because it actually in some ways teaches us how to fight well. It teaches us how to have conflict well and how to trust the spirit in the navigating of conflict that we will come across in our lives. Um, my wife and I, um, early on in marriage, we had to actually like learn how to fight well. Um, it's, one of the, it's one of the pieces um, that as we walked through our marriage, we realized in year three of our marriage, we looked at each other and we're like, we have no idea how to fight. Part of that is like our upbringing, like my parents like prided themselves on never having an argument. And while that's really good on one hand, the negative part, like they love each other really well, the negative part is we actually never learned how to like fight well or to resolve conflict. It, like we just didn't see it modeled or I didn't see it modeled. On top of that, Liz and I long distance dated and so we would see each other for like a weekend out of the month and so you are sure that we are not fighting on those two days that we're together, right? So it's just stuff it, stuff it, stuff it, stuff it. And about third year of marriage, we realized we're like, we have no idea how to fight well. Like we have no idea how to deal with like our conflict. How do we do this? And it was a hard, it was a, it was a really difficult year learning those lessons that we probably should have learned 
like in dating or three years before or growing up for that matter. How do we fight well? How do we deal with conflict well? Like we need to learn as the body of Christ. And we get to see through the apostles and through these two groups of people and the work of the Spirit, a beautiful posture in dealing with really difficult moments and times. We will hit conflict. And so first, what is conflict? Where does it come from? Um, there's many different ways, but scriptures paints like two ways of the many that I just wanna sit and see today. Conflict happens when we're at odds with another person over what we think, what we want, or what we do. Conflicts with another person or people over what we think or what we want or desire or what we do, how we act. It involves any, everything from major disputes to like small disagreements and the results of conflict as you've walked through it is like pain, offense, damage, like the eroding of trust that was once there and now like I can't trust anymore in relationships. And as a follower of Jesus, we cannot escape conflict. And maybe you came to faith um, like thinking that conflict wouldn't be part of the spiritual journey. Um, and I'm sorry to tell you, like it is. And if anything, the past couple years just in our, in our culture and our society has just taught us like, like this is part of our reality. And it's bursted maybe the false reality that it's not, that we won't hit conflict. We cannot escape it as the body of Christ. So how do we lean into what the scriptures call sanctification? We have been redeemed. You've been filled with the spirit. And now the work of becoming more and more like Christ. Conflict's always difficult to one degree or another, but conflict isn't bad. Even the most mature followers of Jesus will experience conflict. All great relationships, the ones that last over time, they require productive conflict to grow us and to mature us. This is true in your marriage. This is true in your parenting. This is true in friendship. And it's certainly true in the church. Two things scripturally where conflict comes from. One, it comes from our desires. Conflict actually comes from our desires and our disordered desires. Many conflicts, they're the result of sinful attitudes and desires that lead to sinful words and actions. All of us at some point have said something self-motivated or self-centered that triggers conflict. Uh, go to that next verse up there. James 4 says this. We'll be in James a lot, actually. Um, do you see James up there? No? Might not be up there. If not, I'll read it. James 4, 1 to 2 says this. What causes fights among you? What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, and so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. We'll stop there for that passage. One more time. What causes fights and quarrels among you? This is James talking. Don't they come from where? The desires that battle within you. You desire but not have, and so you kill. This is a reference to Cain and Abel's story. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. First, conflict comes from, a, from our desires. They can come from our disoriented desires among us. Our sinful desires actually fuel conflict in ways we probably haven't paused long enough to like discover. Like what, in the conflict, what is my desire here? 
Where is this coming from? To look within and to say, what is, is there something battling within me? Is this where the conflict comes? Our desires can become demands that they actually take the place. They become like an idol, like a false God, not made of wood or stone, but our desires and cravings that are out of our control. And the cure for that conflict is repentance. It's returning our hearts to God alone, deciding what his will is and his desire above all else. And so conflict can come from that. It can come from like our desires, the battle that rages within us is what James says. But also conflicts can not come just from our desires, but they can simply come from our God-given diversity. In an analogy for the people that make up Christ's church, Paul uses the picture of a human body in 1 Corinthians 12. We each have an important role to play. We each bring different perspectives. We each bring different cultures and different gifts to the body. And this is God-given diversity. And it leads to differences among us. If we sat down for, for like five minutes about any hot topic, we would all find out we stand in a lot different places. We would, we would find out we have different opinions, we have different perspectives, we have different desires, different priorities. Many of us are, and our differences aren't necessarily wrong. They are simply the result of God-given preferences. And in that we can find, we, we, it's either from those desires or it's from our preferences. And regardless of what it is, it's, it's good for us to discover what that is. Is this just a different preference? Or is, is this conflict that I have with somebody, does that come from a desire in my heart that's not getting met, that I'm letting manifest in a way of, of conflict? There's the natural conflict that arises from our differences. And what we see in this passage is not the first. It doesn't seem to be coming from a sinful desire, but it comes from the differences that are amongst two groups. And regardless of how the conflict comes, it can be a destroying thing that enters in. And so how do the apostles respond? What do they do? Look at verse two. I want to throw that up there, Brett. Acts, verse two. So the 12 gathered all the disciples together and they said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the... And this is how they respond. Now let's notice a few things. First, the apostles responded with unity. Their first call of all the things they could have done, they respond with unity. It says this, the entire 12 apostles gathered all of the disciples together. All 12 gathered all disciples. It's as if we get this picture now, it's so important for us to see this, that one of the first things they do to resolve the complaint and conflict and to address it is they don't split up everybody into fractions. They don't ignore the conflict. They don't brush it off as an insignificant complaint. And like, it doesn't really matter that, bad, that much. You're not really that hurt. Instead, what they do is they gather everybody together. They get into proximity with one another. In conflict, proximity is important. It's so important. Because distant, like I think distant actually will separate us more than the conflict will. When the conflict arises, like in our lives, in, in your life, like distance, the apostles respond with wisdom. 
They respond with wisdom. The apostles are clear that they should not rush to like fix the problem right away or do the work themselves. That would be a really big temptation, wouldn't it? Like there's a big problem here. Like we need to step in and fix it ourselves. But instead, they respond in wisdom. No doubt this is an echo of an Old Testament story of Moses and the people in Israel in Exodus 18. Moses and the people are in the wilderness in Mount Sinai. They've just, just been released um, from slavery in Egypt and they're like this new people forming uh, with this covenant to Yahweh and they're, they're trying to figure this out. And what's happening in the story in Exodus 18 is Moses is the only one judging all the complaints of all the Israelites that are there. And so it's just like you just imagine the weight on there and his father-in-law Jethro comes to visit him and he looks at Moses and he's like, this is not good. Like, this is, this is not good. You're doing this wrong. And he advises him strongly that Moses should take other people who fear God and who are trustworthy and who aren't in it for dishonest game and Moses should delegate those responsibilities so that he can primarily stay focused on listening to the Lord and leading the people. And this is what the apostles echo here in this passage. They recognize, if you notice in the passage, they recognize their primary role is the ministry of the word is what it says. And they should not neglect it to wait on tables. When I first read this like years ago, I was like, wow, that was pretty pompous there. Disciples like, we're not gonna wait on tables. That's easy for us to hear it and read it that way. It's, it's, it's not like mocking that um, service type of aspect. It's not saying like, hey, we don't do the work of busboys. It's not saying that. Waiting on tables was more of a division of labor term. It was a high honor term. The Torah had lots of good things to say about we care for our widows, and this was a high honor. And so they're not saying it, we, like, we need to give them some trust here. They're not saying that in a derogatory way. But what they want to do is turn the responsibilities over to those who can help so that they can stay attentive to what their primary role is, which is the ministry of the word. And what I love about this passage, can we go back up there? Oh, thank you. We will turn this responsibility over to them, verse four, and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. What we see even tucked in this passage is the first work of what it means like to, for these apostles to be a minister of the word is not to do, 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 but to be prayerful people, like to abide in Jesus, to be people who are people of his presence. And secondly is the ministry of the word. And this is the continued teachings of the way of Jesus in the scriptures. So the apostles like Moses before him, they respond with wisdom, unity and wisdom and keeping their attention on what they're called to do. They don't try to become the savior of the moment. They don't try to become the hero. Instead what they do is like what Moses did. They didn't just try to fix it, but they delegated. In many ways they asked for help. And they said, come help. So they responded with unity, they responded with wisdom, and third, the, the apostles responded with a kingdom posture. This will be important for us to see this, because you see their posture in their heart. Uh, look, <laughs> brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be, what does it say? Full of the spirit and of wisdom. Full of the spirit and of wisdom. They asked those among them to be part of the solution to choose seven men from among them full of the spirit and of wisdom and are quite like, what's, what does that look like? What does it look like for a person to be full of the spirit and to be full of wisdom? When we hear full of the spirit, maybe we think of Galatians 5, um, 
This is Paul writing about the fruit of the Spirit. It's like a person who is like a tree who is ripe with these attributes, like, like ripe with these attributes. Galatians 5 says this, if the screen works and it's up there. Galatians 5, but the fruit of the Spirit, this is what it means to be full of the Spirit, is love, is joy, is peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying one another. This is to be full of the Spirit. What does it mean to be full of the Spirit and full of wisdom? James uh, 3 gives us some insight. Brett, you can throw that verse up there if it's working. Nope, you gotta listen to me talk. James 3 says this, but the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit. It's impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. In James, it tells us what wisdom is. Wisdom that comes from heaven is first pure and peace-loving and considerate. Do you see like what type of people, like the apostles say, look for these type of people. Look for these types of people. Essentially, the disciples aren't looking for people who fit the job description really well in the daily distribution of food. They're not saying, hey, we need people who are really organized in this. That's a gift, that's really good. But that's not what they, they were full of spirit and of wisdoms. The apostles respond in a kingdom posture because they know what matters in the world. They are not looking, in a sense, they're not looking for competence. They're looking for character. And that's what they, that's what they choose. Pick people of character. And maybe one of the calls for us this morning is like, is that, a, are we maturing to be people of, full of spirit and full of wisdom to look like what Galatians 5 and James 3 says? By God's grace, like repentance and abiding in Jesus, like we can mature into that. Like ask yourself, am I becoming a person full of the spirit and full of wisdom? So the apostles respond with unity, wisdom. They have this kingdom posture and let's read in verse five, if you have your Bibles, uh, it's not gonna be up on the screen. Let's read how do people respond. So they say, here's what we're gonna do. We know there's a problem. Here's our response. What is everybody else's response to this proposition that the apostles give? Verse five says this, the proposal pleased the whole group. It pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Pause on Stephen for a second. Um, we actually don't get to look at his story in Acts 6 and 7. And so homework assignment for everybody. Congratulations, welcome to church. This week, like read chapter 6 and 7. Read the story of Stephen. What does it look like for a man full of the spirit? And this says full of faith as well. What does his story, he becomes the first martyr of the church. Gives this incredible speech talking through the whole Old Testament of how it points to Jesus. This is where we're introduced to Saul of Tarsus who will be later known maybe by his Greek name, Paul. Um, St. Paul. So read that story. We don't get to hit it today. But verse five says, they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. Verse six, they presented these men to the apostles 
who prayed and laid their hands on them. It pleased the group. They're like, this sounds good. They choose seven people, two of which, Stephen and Philip, we're gonna hear more stories about in the the next parts of Acts. They give them to the apostles. They say, here's the men we chose. The apostles lay hands on them, bless them, basically commission them for the work that they're about to do. But the choice here, and we can often miss it not being culturally there, the choice here really has a radical edge to it. It has a radical edge that's really easy to miss. And it's this choice that becomes this like monument of Christ-likeness. They have a kingdom posture and they're going to model Christ-likeness. How do they do this? Remember, the attention rose between two groups. What were our two groups? You had Hebraic Jews, Aramaic-speaking Jews, and you have Hellenistic Jews, Greek-speaking Jews. Here's our two groups in conflict. And the Hellenists complain that their widows are being overlooked. And notice something in those names if you have your Bible. If you look at those names of those men that they chose, Stephen, Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Parmesus, Nicholas, those names of the sevens are not Jewish names. They're Greek names. There's no Akiva in there. There's no Yaakov. There's no Benjamin among them. The unidentified choosers of these seven men, listen, they decide to turn over the power and the work of what's about to happen. They turn them over to the Greek-speaking believers. The side that like kind of rose up with the complaint. And they say, we're gonna choose seven Greek-speaking men to address this. How many of us, when we realize we've failed a group within our community, that we actually like turn the power over them to them. To surrender power is to be so much like Christ and completely opposite than the kingdom of this world, than the kingdom of our culture that we live in, than the kingdom that's often still in my heart. But it's this act of actually surrendering power and preference over moving forward. To surrender like this is an act of full of the spirit and of wisdom in the kingdom of God. How do we know this? We know this because this is what the scriptures teach us. Um, if you have your Bibles, because I know it's on the screen, but it's such an important passage. Can you turn there? It's Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. If you don't, I'll read it. It's okay, but um, I want us to see this point because like it's, it's really important for like this seed to get planted in us as river and way. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Looks like most of you are there. Here's what it says. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ, Jesus. How does Paul start? He's about to give this like almost this poem, this creed about what, what Christ did and how he handled power. And he's about to tell us this, but here's the context. In your relationships with one another, in our relationships together, and how we do life, and how we do church, in your relationships with one another, and your spouse, amongst your brothers and sisters in Christ, you need to have this mindset. It's the same as Christ Jesus. Verse six, who, being the very nature of God, verse nine, 
Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. In your relationships with one another, have this same mindset of Christ Jesus. This is the mindset of Christ. It's what Christ taught his disciples, that you don't lord power over each other like the Gentiles do, exercising authority. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must become what? A servant. We have conflict that arises, the apostles respond in this way, and the group is pleased with the outcome. What are the results? Go back to Acts if you're in Bible. Acts six, verse seven. You have, we have the problem, we have the apostles um, giving their response, we have the response of the people. And then finally, let's see what happens. What comes out of this conflict? What is the result of this way of handling it and dealing with it? Verse seven says this. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. One more time, I'll read that. Oh, we're working again? There it is. So the word of God spread the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Two things are obvious. One thing um, is kind of a hidden gem in this, but let me read the first two. The word of God spread. The news of King Jesus spread all the more. The very thing the apostles had the wisdom to do was to keep their attention on the ministry of the word in this moment. Like the fruit of it is it spreads more. The number of disciples increased rapidly. You notice that word there? At first, our problem first started because the numbers were increasing. And because they handled in this conflict well, it increased rapidly. In fact, a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. And lastly, as we kind of land the plane on this, this moment is actually a precursor to the greater challenge and conflict that's going to come in the next couple verses. If we zoom out from the story today, the entire like story of Acts is going to this trajectory. Jesus said, you will be my disciples to Judea, then Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so the story is kind of going out, but in that going out, there's going to be conflict. Not just against the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebrew-speaking Jews, but soon the word of God will be given to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. And we read this now, 2,000 years later, and we're like, what's the big deal? But the, almost the entire New Testament is dealing with this issue. What do we do with Gentiles who want to follow the way of Jesus, but do they have to become Jewish first to do that? It's one of the biggest tension points, tons of it, tons of, like Paul's even like calling out uh, Peter on this in the scriptures. Like this is like, this is a huge tension point, a huge conflict point. And what I want us to see here is the way that they handled this moment prepared them. It actually did some, a, a way to handle the conflict. It prepared them for something that was coming in the future. And I want us to see that because I, I, I see that like back to the biodome story with the wind. Like often when these moments come, and they come in our lives, these conflict and tension moments, we want to like get away from them as fast as possible. Unless you're that weird person in the room who's just like, I'm ready to fight, like, let's have some conflict. But probably the majority, it's just like, ah, I, I don't wanna deal with this right now. But it's in those moments, if we rely on the spirit in unity, if we, um, if we walk in wisdom, 
And if we walk in a posture of Christ-likeness, that those moments of tension, those moments of conflict can actually form, form in us something really beautiful. Like we, we know that not all conflict can be resolved. We know that. Like in this life, in this world, there's gonna be some moments in some of our life that splits have to happen. That, and those are, those are something to be mourned. But for the most part, I think conflict should begin to form in us something. It should begin to form in us deep roots, deep roots like a tree that has strong roots so that as it grows, it doesn't just topple over. It actually becomes anchored and it becomes mature. What does this mean for us? What does this mean for us as a community? Um, chapel that is uh, right down in San Diego um, in I think Liberty Station, was that it? Liberty Station, just this gorgeous chapel was amazing. And we're, I'm marrying this couple and everybody smiles and he's, he's like handsome, she's gorgeous. They're just like crying. They did their vows. This is this beautiful moment, right? And I always like, I prepare them like in premarital stuff, but I always say this like as I'm marrying them is they're just like in love, right? Just ready to kiss. They're like, please stop talking, pastor, so that we can, we can go. But like I'm sitting there and I'll, I'll tell them like, what you're about to say yes to will be the hardest thing you ever say yes to. Like marriage in, in so many ways is made like to, to, to form us. Like it's, I, I have to daily like lay down like my desires, my, like we have to do this together. Marriage is something that forms you. Um, and I'm telling them like, and like everybody's in the crowd's like, yep, this is gonna be the hardest thing you ever do. But they're just like in love, right? They're like, hey, we get it. I'm warning them, like, hey, like, right now is beautiful. Right now is this. But not every day will be like this. And that's when we do, like, the rings. Like, this is a reminder of, like, your vows when it gets really hard. And I share that story because, like, I was, I was reading this passage today. And just for us as a community, as a young church plant, I'm here to tell you there will come moments where it gets really hard. Like, there will be conflict. Like, we will have it. Um... Like I, I, maybe we already do in some ways, it just hasn't come out yet. And how we walk through it actually will do something beautiful if we press into unity, if we press into wisdom, and if we allow the moment to create in us a Christ-like attitude, knowing that we still need to mature and we need to be sanctified and we need to grow. So as a community, that's like for us, like if conflict arises, it's okay. And now it's time to talk through it. And that's our responsibility as brothers and sisters. So us as a community, that's one way to think about it. And also just in your life. As you go about your week in conflict to maybe have that posture again. Again, this is not like a, um, you do these three steps, everything's perfect. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. Many conflicts just are just too hard to repair. But what things we can do, just three questions you can ask in the midst of your, con of your conflict, I'm gonna throw them up there, is this. In the conflict like that you're in, or you will be in, are you pursuing unity? Are you pursuing like a coming back together? Is that happening? A question to ask. The next, what does is, what is like wisdom ask for of this moment? What is wise? Not what, it, what is like, what do I need? What is, it's like, what is wise? So many problems can be avoided if we just ask that one. Like, what does wisdom ask of me in this moment? And thirdly, am I becoming more like Christ in this conflict? What is it doing towards me? Is it actually shaping me to more like um, Philippians 2, 
Does it, do I look more like Jesus in the midst of this conflict? Um, and so as we, like, as we wrap up our time, um, and what I love about the scriptures, we walk through it, like we, we hit just these moments like this. We don't get to avoid them. But this is just the questions for you. And like what I, as, we, as we do some time of response, um, we do some singing. We're gonna just have a, a little like 20 minutes or just some time to worship and to respond. We're gonna take the bread and cup. We're gonna remember Christ's body broken for us. Um, and so in this time of worship, like I just was, was thinking of James 1 where he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask and God will give generously. Um, and so just in this moment, like whatever, whatever like the Lord brings up that he wants to say just through this passage, would you just spend time with him in that? Maybe it's just a time of asking for wisdom. It's a time of maybe if there is conflict in your, in your heart, in your life, in your world, is to actually bring that conflict before the Lord and say, God, what do I do here? What is wisdom in this moment? What do you have for me? How do, how do I become more like you in this? How do I become more forms in the way of love? And so we're gonna take communion. We're gonna respond and worship Jesus with all that you have. Come before him with thanksgiving and praise. Um, we'll do that together. So I'm gonna pray and we'll release to communion. Jesus, I thank you.